Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. So if you have your Bibles again, John 18, the verses I think will be up on the screen, but here's how it begins. Here's what it says. John 18, we'll start here in verse 1, and we'll just walk through this. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, that's the words of chapters 13 through 17, it says he went out with his disciples, it tells us, over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, this is very bold of Jesus to do this. Uh, Jesus knows that he is on sort of Israel's most wanted list, that there's a hit on his head by the religious leaders. Jesus knows his hour has come, but notice the courage and the fearlessness of Jesus. He took Passover with his disciples in the upper room, but now he goes out. He went out with his disciples, and he says that he went to a garden. We know that's the Garden of Gethsemane. We learn about that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it tells us here it's a place that Jesus regularly frequents with his disciples. Um, It's good to have a place like this in our lives as well where we can get away, be alone with the Father, whatever that garden is for you. Maybe it's your back patio. Maybe it's your bedroom with the door closed while the kids are watching a TV show. Uh, We all have a different version of that. For a long time, that was my car. my, My car was my garden of Gethsemane, you know, where I could get alone with the Father. But that's what this place was for Jesus. I want you to notice it says that he went out to this garden, but notice it says there, over the brook Kidron. This is a, um, an important thing for John to include. This is not just random. He's letting us know something specific here. This brook that Jesus is stepping over, going into the Garden of Gethsemane, is a downstream brook that runs um, as a drainage source from the temple. So at this time, remember, it's Passover. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb of God, going to the garden And it's very likely in this stream that Jesus is looking at as he goes over this brook into the garden, he's looking at the blood of those lambs, of those sacrifices that are running, picture like murky water, running in this water downstream. So John includes that on on purpose. John has let us know that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And you just um, can just imagine what's going through Jesus' mind here. As he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's looking at those blood sacrifices, And he is the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. So here's what it says in verse 2. It says, And Judas, who betrayed him, this is in retrospect now, John's writing this, he also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. We, we hear the name Judas, and it's, it's like any other infamous, horrible person in history. You, do, you know, not many people name their kid Judas these days. My son's name is Judah, and people have called him Judas, and um, it's taken everything into me not to correct them. But, but for the most part, this is not a common name because of what it represents, but we must remember at this time, Judas is not the betrayer uh, for, for the years that he's with the disciples. He's actually the treasurer. He's a, a, a close friend at this point. We're talking about someone that has spent close proximity to the disciples and Jesus. And now we're seeing him after he has gone out. John 13, Jesus and, and Judas have this interaction where Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. John tells us that Judas goes out into the night and he conspires with the religious leaders, 
uh, how much they would pay him to betray Jesus. Judas knows where Jesus would be, okay? This is not 2020. There's no GPS. There's no, I don't know what kind of government technology is out there to know where we are at all times. I'm not, I'm not a crazy conspiracy theorist, but I, I think they know where you are, okay? That's just my idea. Who knows? Um, they're watching me right now. Sorry, government, okay? But um, the point is back then, man, it's not the same. Um, it's not like, let me find my friend on my iPhone. It's, it's all word of mouth. There's no uh, photography. Um, and so it's, it's very hard to track someone down. But Judas here, he is going to betray Jesus, I'm not sure if you've ever been betrayed before, none of us to this extent, but if you have, maybe you can relate a bit to what Jesus is going to go through here. Judas, it tells us again in verse 2, who betrayed him, he knew the place where they were. Verse 3 says, then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So Judas now comes. Uh, Matthew and Mark's gospel let us know that Jesus is with his disciples praying in the garden, right? Remember the disciples are falling asleep and he's like, you can't just watch with me for an hour. The disciples are sleeping on Jesus instead of being there for him at his hour of need. They're actually crashing from exhaustion. And Jesus is praying. He rises up and he sees his betrayer at hand. He sees him coming, and here's Judas coming, and just picture the scene in this garden. There's no street lights, okay? There's, there's a bit of a, of a moonlight going on at this time of year, but picture, it says here, a, a Judas and this detachment of troops. This word detachment could also be translated a cohort, and it's a, a, a militaristic term that, that could be a minimum of 600 men, 600 men. So picture like 600 torches just coming through this garden upon Jesus. Probably a terrifying sight. And to make matters worse, these men, they're coming with, uh, it says lanterns and torches, um, but also with weapons. Uh, Luke will tell us that they have clubs and they have swords. We don't know the exact sequence of how things perfectly play out here with the disciples when they run, when they don't, but here's what it tells us here in John. Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, this is huge, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, who are you seeking? Then they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now that's verse 4 and 5. This is really interesting. It tells us here, and this is a feature in John, if you go back to verse 4 there, Jesus knowing what's going on. Jesus knew what was coming upon him. And knowing his crucifixion was ahead of him, isn't it amazing that Jesus doesn't run and hide, but Jesus with all boldness and courage steps forward into the light, and he says, who are you looking for? Uh, This is, by the way, a great contrast to another man in a garden named Adam, who Jesus is called in the New Testament the second Adam. The first Adam, when he was in the garden, he, when he was wrestling with God's will, he ended up doing his own will and not God's will. Jesus here, the second Adam, is in the garden. Matthew tells us that he's saying to God, if, any, if there's any way, please let this come pass from me. But what does Jesus say? Not my will, nevertheless, not my will, 
your will be done. We have the second Adam whose obedience is gonna save many. One man's disobedience cursed many. And then we have one man's obedience saving many. And what, here's another contrast. The, second, uh, the first Adam, he sinned and what did he do? He ran and he hid. But here's Jesus submitting to the Father's will. The scriptures say in Proverbs that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And here's Jesus Christ the righteous, bold as a lion, stepping forward. There's no detachment of troops to intimidate Jesus. Can we just establish this? And he says, who are you looking for? Now, Jesus knows who they're looking for. What I believe he's doing is, is, is uh, specifying to them that they're after him and not his disciples so that they can get away and be fine. Uh, he's also, I think, trying to point out the clear intent. He, he almost wants these soldiers to be aware of what they're doing. Who are you looking for? He, it's like he wants them to not just do it, but to say what they're doing, which is arresting Jesus. And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says to them, I am he. The word he there is in italics. Jesus literally says the same thing that God, the burning bush said to Moses. He says, I am. It tells us this, that Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. We also know, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus is identified by Judas through a deceitful kiss. Uh, That's how he would identify him. I think that's important to point out that Jesus, it's not like Jesus was glowing in the dark, you know? Um, Jesus, as we read there in Isaiah in the beginning, was, there was nothing about him specifically that made him, he was a man. Um, and uh, he had to be distinguished from the rest. Uh, and here's Jesus. He's stepping forth boldly. And it says in verse 6, Now when he said to them, I am he, this is amazing, they drew back and fell to the ground. Just picture the scene. Like 600 people at least and torches, boom, just like falling to the ground, people stumbling all over each other, maybe starting little fires. I don't know, probably, likely. Uh, Verse 7 says, then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, verse 8, I've told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. It says in verse 10 there, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant. And cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Uh, this is an interesting event that uh, it's only the Gospel of John that records who does it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke just say that there was a disciple who yielded their, uh, wielded their sword, rather, and cut off a dude's ear. Um, and here it lets us know. John's like, I know who, it was Peter. It was Peter. Peter did it. I know who it was. Okay. John's like, John's like not pulling any punches. Uh, there's kind of this rivalry that goes on with John and Peter. We're going to see on Sunday that John points out the fact that when him and Peter were going to the tomb, John outran him to the tomb. Like, so, so there's kind of that like brotherly thing that goes on with them. And so here, John's the only gospel writer to be like, Peter's the guy that cut off Malchus's ear. Um, and we see certainly what's characteristic of Peter here, zealous, courageous, bold, fiery, off the cuff. Um, you know, what was he trying to do here? Notice he didn't go for one of the soldiers. <laughs> you know, he went for like one of the servants um, and he cut off his ear. Did he mean to? Was he like, I'll chop off your hair, ear? Oops, you know, uh, I don't know. Um, but notice what Jesus says to him. Peter coming to Jesus' defense Jesus said to him in verse 11, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup 
which my Father has given me. So Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. Um, in Luke's account, uh, Jesus said, Peter, do, do you think I really need your help? Like, if I really wanted to, couldn't I call on, he says, t- Jesus actually says 12 legions of angels. Um, one legion, I believe, is, is six or 7,000 angels. It's 6,000 angels. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, if I needed help, I would call on the 72,000 angels to come to my aid. Um, one angel can do a lot of damage. Imagine 72,000 military angels showing up. Jesus is like, Peter, I'm good. And also, here's the heart of this. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? This, this cup is, is, is pointed to all throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament. This is the cup of the wrath of God poured out upon sin. Verse 12 says, Then the detachment of troops, the captain and the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, before we just get used to reading something like this, and we've been in the Gospel of John for some time, let's stop for a second. Let's back up. Imagine we're reading this in the same moments after we read John 1.1. Or, or John 1, 14. We read that in the beginning of this study where we see that Jesus, he is God in the flesh. He is the word made flesh. God became a man. Second Timothy says that God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus is gonna go, is gonna go on to say that he is the one who has come into the world. Jesus preexisted his birth as God. And he is God manifested in the flesh. That's how we started John. John's all about the divinity of Christ. Jesus, the idea is not just a good man, but he is the God man. He is creator God. He he knit every soldier here together in their mother's womb. Just try to wrap your mind around this. I'm trying to do the same thing. The creator God bound by rope and arrested. Jesus is arrested. They bound him. Verse 13 says, And they led him away to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas, we looked at this last week, who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people or instead of the people. Verse 15 says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Let's watch this play out here. You have Simon Jesus and another disciple. It's highly likely that's John, because whenever John's referring to himself, he's got like this double-sided coin. He's got like a prideful side and a humble side. His prideful side tends to come out when he's like contesting with Peter, but here he's, he's unnamed. He doesn't name himself. He often refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So this is likely Peter and John. And it says here that that disciple was actually known to the high priest. And he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, this is, this is, this is Peter, he said, I am not. I am not. Peter denies Jesus. Verse 18 says, Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold. That's 
It's interesting. It's, it's kind of like that's written by someone who was there, who remembers the, the temperature outside. He's like, it was cold out that day. John's in his 70s, late 70s. Actually, I believe some people point to him being in his late 80s, close to 90s. He's, he's up there. And so, he, you know, the older you get, it seems like the more blankets you need. And John's like, remembers, man, it was cold. It was cold that day. Um, and they warmed themselves. Notice this, and Peter stood with them, and he warmed himself. Just imagine what's going through Peter's mind right now. Why did Peter deny Jesus? Man, why do we? To wrap our minds around this is, is a tough thing to do. Um, I, don't, some, I grew up thinking that it was Peter's cowardice. He was just terrified. But I don't know. A, a moment ago, he was cutting off. He, he took a sword to a group of 600 soldiers, I, I don't know if this is frustration for Peter. We, we see with Peter that one of the main things he came into contact with and collided with Jesus with in his life was Jesus going to the cross. Peter wasn't crazy about that idea. Um, remember the time where, where, Peter, where, where Peter says, you were the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus goes, yeah, man, that's my father who revealed that to you. And then Jesus talks about how he's gonna die and, and be crucified, and Peter goes, never, Lord. And Jesus goes, get behind me. Satan, I mean Peter, I mean Satan, you know, like that awkward moment. And so this is a collision we see with Jesus and Peter, and could it be that, that, G, that Peter is really having a hard time coming to grips with this idea of a Messiah who lays down his life? And, and Peter, he loses his faith in the Messiah here. He denies knowing him, denies being one of his disciples. We would never have expected that from Peter. We do now because we look back on it, but... Verse 19 says, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. They wanted to know how many disciples does Jesus have and what is he teaching. Verse 20 says that Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I, was always, I always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. These who are questioning him, these, um, this high priest, they, he knows who Jesus is. Okay, he, he knows how many disciples he has, which is at this point, there, there's been masses that have come to celebrate him. Many have rejected him at this point, but they know that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. He, Jesus says, I came speaking openly in the temple. You heard my greatest sermons. You were there for them. You were offended by them. In fact, you want to kill me because of those sermons. Jesus says, I was always speaking openly. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Now notice this in verse 22. And when he had said these things, here's the creator God saying these things. One of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the great high priest. And here is the great high priest of all men being struck for his truthful words that he's speaking to an earthly high priest. Um, what, what an offense. Uh, Charles Spurgeon described this as one of the greatest human errors, one of the greatest faults of sin in the history of the world, was this first blow to the very face of Jesus. Um, in the other accounts, we see that it was more than just a strike in the face. Um, they end up blindfolding Jesus and striking him repeatedly, um, and asking him to prophesy and say, who hit you, who hit you? If you're the son of God, let us know who hit you. Um, before it gets there, verse 23 says, Jesus answered them, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if do well, why do you strike me? So, so Jesus, in light of being struck by him, he says, 
If I've done something wrong, I understand that you hit me. But if I'm doing the right thing, why would you strike me? Now, it's interesting. Peter, uh, he sees this going on. Peter is within an eye shot. He can, he can see these events happening. And Peter will go on to write in 1 Peter 2 about how Jesus has actually set an example for us um, when we are suffering for doing the right thing and we, are, we take it patiently instead of hitting back Instead of being our own attorneys and defending ourselves, he, he said that Jesus has left us an example, and he, he, Jesus was the one here who, when he was struck, he didn't strike back. When he was reviled, he didn't revile back. He suffered for doing good, leaving us an example. Peter writes that as someone who watched that. He watched that happen here. Now look at verse 24, it says, Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And verse 25 lets us know that Simon Peter stood and warned himself. He warmed himself still by that fire. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? Aren't you one of his disciples? He denied it and he said, I am not. This is now the second time we know uh, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows. One of the servants of the high priest, notice this, a relative of him who had his ear cut off by Peter, said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? He's like, didn't you cut my cousin's ear off? Like, weren't you the guy that chopped Malchus's poor ear off? And Jesus then healed his ear, right? Wasn't that you? Peter then denied it again. So three times denying it. All right, this is the three strikes of Peter. He's out. He, he is, he's out on his faith in Jesus. He's given up. Now, what's amazing, we're going to see um, in two weeks, a week from this Sunday, we're going to look at the restoration of Peter and how we might feel like we've struck him out, but there is, um, there is no sinful fall that Jesus cannot restore. And that's always good news to know, that we, we might mess up as royally as we ever expected, and we might fall farther from grace than we ever dreamed of, but the truth is that there is really no such thing as falling from grace, uh, because grace is always deeper than, what, than where we fall. And we, we learn that with Peter, but here's Peter, unfortunately, at this moment. Think about Jesus here. It tells us in Matthew that Jesus is with, he actually looks at Peter at this moment. So can you just imagine Peter's heart wrenching and breaking as he denies Jesus? And sees Jesus, look at him as he does that. Peter denies his Lord, denies knowing him. He, he, he at once said that we'll, we'll die with you. And now he's here denying him. It says, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas. Now here's the, the famous interaction with uh, Jesus and Pilate. Oh, sorry, we gotta point out verse 27. Then Peter denied again and immediately a rooster crowed. It's important to point out the rooster crow. A tradition tells us that, that um, Peter was mocked for the rest of the years of his life by the religious non-believers in Jerusalem when he would walk by. This is like a, it actually is written in history. This was known about Peter, that he was the one who denied before the rooster. And so Peter would be walking by and they would give out a horrible rooster crow in his ears and he would be reminded of this. Um, people are messed up, you know. Um, verse 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that, but that they might eat the Passover. Isn't it amazing how people can do such sinful things at the same time as doing religious things? They don't want to go into the Praetorium. They want to be holy. They don't want to defile themselves. They got to keep the Passover. I'm not going to go into that Gentile place. I'm a good religious person as I am seeking to kill the Son of God. Um, it's, it's just good to be reminded that religion cannot save us. 
religion, it, it modifies your outward behavior, but it doesn't do what only the gospel of Jesus can do, which is transform your heart, change your life. Jesus came to change us from the inside out. And, and here we have, how crazy is this? We have religious people doing horribly sinful things. Can I just say a few things? If you're a person that's like, man, I'm not a Christian because uh, religious people. Can I just say, like, that kept me from faith for a long time, and here's what I've learned. Uh, two things. Religious people sin, okay? Christian people sin. Uh, people who go to church go to church not because they have it together, but because they need grace, like we all do. Uh, but also understand that religion is not the same as Jesus. Religion is about what I can do to get to God, Christianity is about what God has done to save me. And that's just so important to point out here. Um, let's go on with this. So Pilate, verse 29, they're not going to come in. So it's early in the morning. Pilate's like waking up, rubbing the crust from his eyes, verse 29. Then Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So they bring Jesus to him. Pilate, uh, he goes out. He's representing Rome here. Pilate has the authority to execute a death sentence. The Jewish people do not. Rome has revoked that right. They do, the Jewish people do not have the right to execute Jesus. And, and by the way, there's every, every other um, law that they had uh, for their religion would keep them from executing Jesus. There's so much that, that's being violated here to crucify Jesus. So Pilate goes out. They got to go to Pilate. They got to go to a higher power to crucify him. Pilate comes out and says, what do you bring against this man? What has he done wrong? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, would we not have delivered him up to you? And I imagine Pilate goes, probably. <laughs> you know, like, it's likely that you guys are just mad at this guy for something. But that's what they said. If he didn't do something wrong, would we have brought him to you? It's like, maybe. Uh, but Pilate says to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Okay, like if he's committed, if he's broken some of your religious laws, then you judge him. And then Pilate sees what they're really up to. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Here's what we really want to do. We want him to die. That the sayings of Jesus might be fulfilled, which Jesus spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus predicted his own death on the cross. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, and he called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? What an interesting interaction here now. Pilate comes back in, and it's, now it's just Pilate and Jesus. Um, and what we're going to see here is one of the most unique interactions in the life of Jesus. Um, Jesus is the most powerful man on earth in the history of the world. He's the highest, um, hi highest point of authority. He's a king. And now he's standing before another, uh, an official, a high official. And there's this interesting interaction we see now between Pilate and Jesus. Um, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate has certainly heard about Jesus. And he's asking, are you who they say that you are? And Jesus says, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me, right? Like, are you asking for a friend, really? You know, does your friend have that problem? Is your friend wondering and you're asking for them? Um, or are you genuinely inquiring about Jesus? Uh, a lot of times we can play the same kind of games where we sort of sugarcoat what's really in our heart and uh, what we're really seeking in life. And Jesus, when we come before him, uh, listen, we, we'll all have this kind of moment. Every one of us are gonna have this moment in life where it's just us and the Lord. And, and God, I, I hope you've had this where he just kind of speaks to you and goes, hey, what, what are you really looking for? And we have a chance, like we'll see Pilate here to either bow our knee 
to this higher authority or instead um, usurp his authority and be our own royalty. Um, that's what Pilate does here. That Jesus asked the question, are you asking or is someone else? And Pilate said, well, am I a Jew? I'm not a Jew. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answers his first question. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I love that. Are you a king? He goes, my kingdom's not of this world, a.k.a. yeah. Yeah, I'm a king, and I'm a king of a kingdom that's unlike any kingdom you've ever imagined. Uh, in my kingdom, your highest currency of, uh, and, and commodity of gold is literally pavement, okay? And my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, and I would have let Peter cut off a couple more ears. But uh, that's not the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not advance through taking lives. The kingdom of God is gonna advance through the example of the king who lays down his life. That's how he wins over the enemy. And Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. The kingdom of God, not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered and said, you say rightly that I'm a king. Yes, I'm a king. For this cause, notice this, I was born. For what? To be a king, to, be the ki to bring the kingdom of God here to earth. And notice this, and for this cause, I have come into the world. Now, um, this is not a phrase that we could use of ourselves, like I was born and I came into the world. Now, we use that, like your parents probably have said that to you, right? Like, we brought you in this world, we can bring you out kind of a thing. Um, but what Jesus is saying here is he's not giving a nod to a, a, you know, a, a dad sentiment. You know? uh, what, he's, what he's saying here is not only was I born of woman, but I preexisted and I've come into the world. This is God from eternity past coming into the world. Jesus coming into the world for this cause of bringing the kingdom. Why? And, and part of that cause was, look at this, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to bear witness to the truth, the truth of our sin, the truth of God's love, and the truth of God's salvation. And he said at the end of the day, that's my kingdom. And notice what he said, everyone who is of this truth is gonna hear my voice. Uh, the people who will populate heaven are not defined by how good they are. And they don't gain access into heaven uh, because of, their goodness and their betterness compared to other people who weren't as good. The dividing line of those that spend an eternity with God and, and, and those who, who don't, an eternity apart from God, is whether or not they heard and received the truth. The truth of God's salvation, which we're gonna see here. Um, and Pilate says, what is truth? That is the question, isn't it? Um, I wonder if Pilate knows John 14, 6. I wonder if he knows that Jesus has said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Um, now notice this, Jesus doesn't answer. Jesus doesn't answer. Uh, when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Well, at least it doesn't include Jesus' answer. I wonder if Jesus replied. I wonder if he said, the question isn't what is truth, it's who is truth. I wonder if he said that, I don't know. But here's Pilate's conclusion. I find no fault in him. He's a sinless, spotless lamb. There's nothing sinful or criminal about him. He's a king representing the kingdom of God, bringing truth. And, and you almost sense, it's, 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 it's not included here, but it's almost said with what's not said that Pilate is almost having this internal dialogue, this wrestle. 
And there's a sense now in which we'll see Pilate, he's kind of on the fence, and, and part of him's leaning towards wanting to spare Jesus' life as much as possible and save his life. And so what does he point to? He points to a custom of the Jews. Here's how he really seeks to get Jesus released. It's verse 39. Jesus goes out and he speaks to the people and he says that you have a custom that I should release someone to you at Passover. Now this is a custom of the Jews that's not written in any other historical document. There's no scribe that included this. It's actually only in scripture that we learn this. Uh, it's important to point out the fact that the Bible is a, a historically reliable document that uh, you can use and it's been proven by archaeology and history um, all throughout the years. Uh, there's a, a, a long long-running uh, speculation around the existence of Pontius Pilate until there was some evidence, archaeological evidence, discovered of him just in the past century. And so there's great evidence that the, the Bible points to. It's a great historical document. Um, but here's, and one of the things we see here in verse 39 is that it was a custom of the Jews to release a criminal at Passover. And so what does Pilate do? He brings, this is not, by the way, the only criminal in Jerusalem, but uh, he brings uh, a criminal before them. First he says, therefore, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release Jesus to you? You get a prisoner released. And instead they all cried, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. It says, now Barabbas was a robber. John doesn't give us as much detail as the other gospels that kind of describe more the occasion that they want Barabbas and, and um uh, we learn that the people are actually shouting to crucify Jesus. Now, these are, this is not just the religious leaders. Their ideas have gone into the hearts of the, of the people that were laying down palm fronds. Just that, that Sunday prior, they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And now on Good Friday, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. It's amazing how quick our loyalties to God shift when he doesn't do what we expected him to. And that's what's happening here. They're, they... They, do, they don't want to release Jesus. They want to crucify Jesus. Instead of releasing Jesus, they've got to release someone. P Pilate brings up, well, what about Barabbas? He brings one of the most sketchy dudes there is. This guy's a robber, and you get more language to this criminal that he, he's, he's a serious um, leader of insurrection and just not a trustworthy guy. This is not a guy you want to come in and install your new uh, washer or dryer. You know what I mean? Like, this is a guy that you definitely want to keep, keep outside. And... Barabbas is his name. It's an interesting name. Uh, history tells us his name was actually Jesus Barabbas. Uh, remember, Barabbas means son of. Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Notice his name, Jesus Bar-Abbas, Abba, father. Barabbas is Jesus, the son of the father. And he's a counterfeit of the true Jesus, the son of the true father, the true and living God. And this is the criminal that they want released. Jesus is crucified. They now sentence him to be crucified. Barabbas, the counterfeit son of the father, is released. He's guilty, but he's declared not guilty. And Jesus, who is not guilty, is declared guilty. And it goes on to tell us that Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, if you've learned about the Cat of Nine Tails, you know that this was a violent, torturous experience as Jesus' own body is scourged. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they all said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Now they're mocking him. He's the king. He's the king. He's the king. 
Um, Pilate asked, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No, crucify him. He, here's, here's the king. So we're going to put a crown of thorns on his head. And we're going to put a, a robe on his back after scourging him. Just imagine the open wounds and this cloth on his back. And they said, hail, king of the Jews, as they struck him. Other, other uh, gospels tell us that they're spitting on him and just violently going after the Son of God. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. There's four times that Pilate says this. Pilate's like, There's no, I don't see anything sinful about him. He, he's done nothing wrong. I find no fault in him. And he's now presenting him to the people. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man, the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him again, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Jesus didn't make himself the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. There's, isn't this interesting? It's like Pilate, um, he's starting to now tremble at the potential of who Jesus is. But isn't it amazing that you can't necessarily be scared into faith in Jesus? Uh, that still is not enough. His heart is still hardened, it seems like, to Jesus. And he comes almost so close. He's, the Bible says that even the demons believe and tremble. So he, he's close enough here to trusting in Jesus as his Lord to the point where he starts to get afraid at the possibility of who this man is, but it's, it's not enough because his heart didn't surrender. It says this, that he went out in again to the praetorium and he tries one more time. He talks to Jesus. He says, where are you from? He's like, okay, who are you? And Jesus um, gave him no answer. Jesus has already gone over this with him. Jesus is like, I don't need to repeat what you already know. At the end of the day, a lot of us, that's how we are right now with God. We're trying to ask God this question, that question, and that's not the issue. The issue is, will you surrender to me? Will you trust me? And we see Pilate asking Jesus, who are you? And Jesus gives him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you, why are you not speaking to me? Do you not know, look at the audacity and the foolishness of this statement. Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you, I have power, power, power. Jesus could have said, no man, no man has the power to take Jesus' life. Jesus is the one who has the power to lay it down. But look at what Jesus said. He said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. That's not your power. All the power you have, any power we have in life, it's the gift of God's grace. That's not your power, that's God's power. You do not have the power to take my life. I have the power to lay it down. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. So what's it gonna be, Pilate? Is it gonna be Jesus or in pleasing God or is it gonna be Caesar and pleasing man? Whoever makes himself, they say to him, a king speaks against Caesar. All right, you're not gonna let that one slide, are you, Pilate? Isn't your ultimate loyalty to an earthly kingdom? When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out, and he, this is kind of where Pilate threw in the town. He said, it's just the cost of, of making this, this man my king and my Lord is too much. So he came out, brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. 
Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered and said, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to be crucified, so they took Jesus and led him away. There's Jesus, this lamb, being led away, away to the slaughter. And verse 17 through 19 includes the most profound event in the history of the world. And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. And two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but instead write, he said, I am King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And this is, we know, the scripture being fulfilled, which says that they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. So Jesus is on the cross, He has the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, upon him. He has a crown of thorns upon his head. And he is experiencing one of the most horrible and horrendous forms of execution ever invented. Um, and, And this is, of course, crucifixion. As Jesus is hung there, nailed to the cross, naked, bloody. Uh, Isaiah tells us unrecognizable. And what possessions he had. We know the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. But what he had was then torn, and the garment he was wearing was ripped apart. Imagine this, God of the universe had everything he had stripped from him, and here's Jesus nailed to a cross. It says in verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister. Can't even imagine what that's like for Mary. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, that's John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Um, If if you've um, encountered the the passing of a loved one before, this is something you see in, in their life often. You see the desire for Um, that person to take care of their own uh, as best as they can. And this is Jesus with great care, trusting his mother to a friend. It must be a good friend to trust your mother to them, you know. And also trusting the need of a mom. There's nothing like mom. And trusting his mo- uh, John to his mom and his mom as all- also to John. And hoping that they take care of each other. John is the youngest, by the way, of the disciples, so it's almost like this guy still needs uh, that motherly figure at that young age. Jesus, therefore, says this, and from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. One of Jesus' seven statements from the cross, the first is to John and his mother, and now Jesus is crying out, 
um, bearing not just physical thirst, but the cosmic spiritual thirst of the entire world. None of us have ever been this thirsty. And a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled filled a sponge with sour wine, and they put it on hyssop, and they put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus receives the sour wine, he declares it is finished, bows his head, gives up his spirit. This is Jesus dying. And this deserves uh, probably at least for now a moment to pause and think about the fact that Jesus died. He, he was so alive. We've been looking at his life for the past three months and he, he's the very source of life. He's the one who, through the Father, has the authority to give us eternal life. He's the way and the truth and the life and Jesus dies. And here we see Jesus giving up his spirit, declaring to telestai, that Greek phrase that says it is complete, seeking that affirmation from his father. I've done the work you've sent me to do. And Jesus gives up his life. It tells us, therefore, because of the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Um, We know that um, Isaiah says that he was pierced for our, our transgressions and here's a great example of that. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done, the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and notice this, and Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus? Nick at night, chapter three, he comes to Jesus by night, Nicodemus, remember this guy? He first came to Jesus by night, he also came, a follower of Jesus it seems now, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as is the custom of the Jews to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid, Jesus, even though it's new, he won't need it for much longer. Spoiler alert, okay, verse 42. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. So Jesus' own body is laid in the tomb. Jesus' own body is is laid here um, in the tomb, fully lifeless. Um, The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ on Good Friday. That's what we have here in John's account. And I want to invite the band to come up now as we, as we close out this time, uh, the heart and the hope of giving our attention to this account in John, uh, the hope of us reading through this and remembering this event in history, all that Jesus experienced, his betrayal, his arrest, him being struck, him being questioned, him being mocked, him being scourged, him bearing his cross, him being crucified, and here, him being laid in the tomb. All of these events, they mean something for you and me. 
These are events that apply to our lives right now. All that we just read there is not just history. It's not just something that's been documented. It's real. It's living. It's applicable to your life. You know, in this story, we see two two real things. On Good Friday, we could say, we see two things displayed. Uh, The first that we saw there was the worst of man's sin and brokenness. It's the first thing we saw. We know the fall of man. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, But that's what we see here in this text first. We see the worst of man's sinfulness and his brokenness. How far has the fall gone? It's, it's brought humanity to a place to where we're going to crucify the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Um, this is the first way that Good Friday applies to you and applies to me. We, know, we must see it through this lens first. There's this African spiritual called, Were You There?, a hymn about the crucifixion that leads us to sing this song, Were You There When They Crucified the Lord? And of course, as, as, as it's being sung, there's this sense in which it's causing you to reflect on the crucifixion and go, man, if I could have only been there, what, what, what meaning would that have provided to me to watch Jesus go through these things, to be in John's position and see Jesus from the foot of the cross. And, and the easy answer to the question is of, of were you there is obviously no, I, I wasn't there physically. But there's this heavy truth that we were there in our sin. There's this heavy reality that must be faced that though I wasn't there physically, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, it's interesting, the way that Luke describes Jesus' death is, it says that Jesus was going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And that's what we saw there. We saw these sinful men doing such sinful things to Jesus. And, and there could be a tendency to look on and go, yeah, those sinful men. Um, but the truth is that the wages of our sin was Jesus' death. We, we might try to wash our hands like Pilate and say, listen, I, I'm not one of them. I'm kind of in the middle. I'm not a horrible, I'm not, a, I'm not the best guy, but I'm also not a horrible guy. But the truth is, guys, our sin, the weight of our sin, we sing it in a song and we say it this way, that it was my sin that put him there. This, this is, listen, this is where we must first step into Good Friday, recognizing the weight of our sin. We need to pray things like Psalm 139 that says, Lord, show me, search me, reveal to me the extent of my sin. Help me understand the, the nature and the weight of my sin. It's, it's a bigger deal than I think it is. Uh, my sin, it is so wicked. It is so vile that Jesus was hung on a cross. And I don't just read this as someone that sees something that happened, but I kind of see myself in the story as a, as a sinful man who, who is a co-betrayer with Judas. I've betrayed the Lord. I'm a co-denier with Peter. I've denied the Lord. I show the same co-rejection as Pilate in my apathy, where I know about the Lord, but I don't love him and serve him and trust him as I should. Listen, 
I am a co-criminal like Barabbas. Deserving of the cross that Jesus took. We are a co-sentencer with the crowds. I do this all the time. Whenever I don't get my way from God, I say, well, Lord, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Listen, before we could ever rejoice in the benefits of the cross, we must first take part in the guilt of the cross. It's our sin. Our sin. We, we must. Listen, this is step one. It's been said the only thing you really need for salvation is need. It's to know that you've sinned, to know that you and I have fallen short, that we are wicked apart from the grace and the love and the salvation of Jesus. You see, that's what we see here. We see the worst of man's sin. But there's an, another truth here. Uh, this truth that says that there was more going on in the Good Friday story than just a bunch of sinful men killing someone they, they disagreed with and they rejected. You see, we also see not just the worst of man's sin, but in this story we read, we see the most of God's love and faithfulness. These two confessions are what it means to be Christian. Number one, that I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that I was there when they crucified Jesus, and yet number two, at the same time, this same God, he was taking my sin on the cross. And it's all because of his love, right? That's the idea. Isn't it so interesting as we read there in verse 18 that, that Jesus, it, it starts off by saying at his arrest that he was bound by rope. And we get this idea that Jesus is human, the humanity of Jesus, that even the creator God could be bound. But I love how Charles Spurgeon says it. Charles Spurgeon says that Jesus was not bound by rope. Jesus was bound by love, it wasn't rope that was keeping Jesus tied. It was his love, his willingness to go to the cross for you and me. You see, we are Barabbas, aren't we? We are those who are guilty, who deserve the sentence and the consequence of our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Barabbas had Jesus. We are the ones who are guilty. But because Jesus, who is not guilty, became guilty, we get declared not guilty. Because Jesus went to the cross. The Bible says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us on that cross, out of his love, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This crucifixion is where the greatest demonstration of love is displayed. God demonstrating his own love for us in that while we were sinners, you see, we were the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross that Jesus said, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. That's the love of God displayed in this cross. Peter would go on to write this. He'll say, that, he'll say this. He'll say that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He bore our own sins on his body that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. This is the display of God's love, and this is the gospel. Um, 
we see both of these truths, both this, this paradox that shows that God is using even our own sinfulness, even man's own fallenness to produce his redemptive purposes in the world. Only God, only God could take a symbol like a cross that's the equivalent of an electric chair, lethal injection. It's a symbol of execution. And God, only God, can take that symbol of execution and make it a symbol of salvation. And that's what the cross is for you and me. I want to close with a reflection. Tim Keller says this, that this is the gospel, that we are more sinful and flawed than we'd ever dare believe. That's the truth. The truth is that we are more sinful and flawed than we would ever want to admit. But at the very same time, here's the Christian faith, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Listen, where are you on that? There's some of us to where our, our pride is too high. And we need to be humbled. We need to see ourselves as those that were there, whose sin put Jesus on the cross, who are guilty. We, we, need to see those, we need to see ourselves not compared to other people, but maybe we need to see ourselves as God sees us apart from him, in desperate need of a Savior. And then there's others of us who that's, that's our problem, is all we ever see is our own sin. And for every look we take at ourselves, we need to learn to take 12 looks at the cross. Because the cross doesn't just show me my sin, the cross shows me the love of God. That at the very same time, I could be more sinful and flawed than I could ever believe, but at the same time, more loved and accepted, more loved and accepted. You are more loved and accepted than you could ever hope. Loved by God. I wonder if someone's watching today and, and you've never truly trusted in Jesus to bring this truth into your life. You, like Pilate, have kind of been on the fence, unsure of him, and here's where you need to find yourself today, on your knees before God, admitting this truth, that you are sinful, but Jesus is a savior. It's what John Newton said on his deathbed. Two things I know, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater savior. All you have to do is call out to him today. See your sin placed on him on that cross and you're forgiven, you're saved. Your sins placed on him, his righteousness is gifted to you. You trade places with him just as Barabbas did and it's his love that lets that sacrifice be true. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.